Fanatsu is a podcast series that features discussions and interviews designed to help educate the Guam community, as well as the rest of the world, about the decolonization of the island and the possibilities should it become an independent nation. Hapa day, buenas. Welcome to the episode, second episode of the Fanatsu podcast. Um, I'm Manny Cruz. I am a master's student here at the University of Guam. I'm joined by Miguel Bivacqua, uh, Ed Leon Guerrero, Jesse Chargloff, and Becca Garrison. Buenas, everybody. Last episode was kind of informal.、Um, that was our first、uh, coffee shop convo.、Uh, today we want to try something a little new to bring to you guys.、Um, we're going to try and keep it、uh, very focused on a specific topic. So today our discussion is going to be centered around why isn't decolonization weird?、Um, you know, I know when people think when when people hear decolonization up until very recently.、Um, Many people have been very frightened by the idea, just because it sounds scary. But what we're going to try and do today is try and talk about, you know, the decolonization movements that have occurred around the world, and here on Guam. And you know, we're trying, we're going to emphasize that this is something that has been occurring for decades, and it's something that Guam has been trying to do for so long now. So, no, very true.、Um, in a You know, I, I think I'm, I'm reminded about this topic and Hafade Hafade Torosamuzu Guanahuzu recently because of your your、uh, letter to the editor that was published in the Guam Daily Post, in which you talked about, for example, discussions that you had with your cousin Vinny, and for, I know for many people on Guam, you've、uh, if you've ever tried to kind of talk about issues of political status change, decolonization, independence. You know, un- unless you were talking to Angel Santos or something like that, you probably got resistance. People probably looked at you and and kind of wanted to know where you purchased your drugs. They <laughs> they would look at you and wonder when you had escaped from mental health.、Um, you know, they would basically look at you and say, "When is the flag burning happening later tonight?" They would imagine you are a crazy person because you are engaging in this discussion. And you know, most normal people. You know, as they say, "Munga maaka i ikanai ni muna bobokahau." You don't bite the hand that feeds you. Whoever controls, you know, whoever holds the keys controls the castle. You know, Chamorros will always throw stuff like that at you, basically saying, "Don't ask questions. Don't think about those things. It's better that we just kind of take what we can get and we don't complain." And so、uh, I found it very interesting thinking about sort of your engaging with your cousin, who, in a way, was. It seemed like he was just kind of representing a lot of common sense status quo talk, not particularly deep understanding of the issues, but just kind of seemed like he didn't really want to engage with those ideas. So he was just kind of talking to to keep from thinking. It's a very interesting thing how people will like talk endlessly to keep from thinking about the very thing that they're talking about. And so I appreciated、uh, your letter where you were talking about that. I don't know if you want to talk about that now. So when I kind of talked him into a corner, and、um, you know about、um, some of the misconceptions that he was bringing up about independence,、um, he was kind of taken aback. He kind of gave up and he said,、um, "I'm just lazy." I was like, "Why don't you come to the meetings? There are people far more、uh, knowledgeable than myself who would be able to answer questions." And he's like, "I'm just lazy. I don't want to like you know." So I think, yeah, there, there's sort of a there's this cognitive dissonance that people are afraid to. To engage with, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of mental effort to try and to open your mind to new concepts, and especially,、um, you know, changing your reality. So, and that's really what independence or even decolonization is all about: is changing、uh, the reality, changing the things that we aren't happy with with the current administration, and thinking about new ways to, or to answer the question: How can things be better? <clears throat> I agree, man. The Theme of complacency goes hand in hand with the the theme of dependency on Guam, and I guess it's just up to us with these um 
with these talks to just inform the people of Guam to new ideas and um, just to see a different way other than our current situation. And I think it'll resonate with them sooner or later. Yeah, you know, for me, kind of um, growing up on the continent in particularly, I, I never learned anything about decolonization. I had never even heard the word decolonization. In fact, I had never even heard the word colony or colonialism um, in, in high school education, right? And so thinking about um, decolonizing your mind, or, you know, and opening up your consciousness for me actually came when I um, left the continent and moved to Hawaii and I began to be exposed more to the sovereignty movement out there as well, you know, and so uh, that's really a privilege for someone to be able to move from the continent and into these spaces and actually learn from the people. And it's very different than, um, you know, you know, working in working at USC and trying to expose uh, uh, kids now to or students to the idea of decolonization is very different than having someone move someplace and learn it firsthand. And so for me, it's um, it's trying to think about how we can bridge those experiences and take them out of not just the classroom, but um, into people's everyday lives. That's not something that most people think about is uh, how how much colonialism affects everyone at an at a day-to-day level you know from the foods that we eat obviously uh, because of the Jones Act um, a ban on certain uh, products that we're not allowed to bring in simply because of where they come from even if geographically they could be closer to us and um, cheaper to import than bringing something in from the mainland Um, so and you know you look at the Pacific Islands and there's so many of us who suffer from non-communicable diseases like high cholesterol, diabetes. Uh, this is, you know, we don't have to incur, you know, if we start thinking about how we can govern ourselves. I want to shift gears. I've been reading uh, Von Lowe's uh, a very short introduction to decolonization, and he points out uh, four waves, four distinct waves. Um, the first one can be thought of as uh, the American Revolution. Yeah, let's. It's. It's interesting because, you know, Tatgulaf, uh, as you were talking about, sort of new ideas. But a lot of this is, it's really just giving people new ideas about things that they're already familiar with. It's kind of like, so we all know sort of that colonization plays a big role in making the Guam and the Chamorro that we know today. And so everyone, you know, Chamorros themselves, anthropologists pointed out, historians, they all say, you know, colonize this, this is lost. Even some Chamorros go so far as to echo the sentiments of bad anthropologists and say, we don't exist anymore, there's no real Chamorros anymore. And so we've all become very accustomed to saying, colonization, that's our history, that's our story. The problem, though, is that decolonization the move, so just as one move constantly sought to take from us, to oppress us, to shape us in different ways, there, has always, there have always been movements to resist, to fight, to try to protect, to try to keep something sacred, to try to adapt and keep something alive. And so you can call that decolonization, that the spirit as the sort of the menacing demonic energy of colonization came to Guam, so, do, so did the spirit of decolonization seek to defend. And it didn't always manifest in the same ways. So that's why, for example, the conceptions that, you might, that we might have of decolonization today would be very different than those from Jose Salas during the Spanish period who uh, assassinated a Spanish governor here on Guam or going back further, it would be different than Magalahi Kapua, or Magalahi Matapeng, Magalahi Harau, and their conceptions would be totally different. But ultimately, just as we can trace the way that colonization has impacted us, we can also trace that the spirit of decolonization has also been there. So part of it is just taking that history that people kind of know, maybe they remember about it when they were sitting in so-and-so's class and in high school, or maybe they, you know, maybe they had an interesting Guam history professor at UOG. They know kind of parts of it, but just reminding them that every time you say that somebody took something from Chamorros, there was movements to protect as well. And so, so that's one of the, and it's not just common to Chamorros. 
this is the type of sort of uh, critical sort of looking uh, critical looking at history to make sure that the indigenous people, the colonized people, have the fancy word is agency, right? That they have a place, that they're not just simply clay that got molded by missionaries or naval governors or Congress people, but that the people here were not just something that destiny discovered and stumbled upon, but that they had a role and they had power and they fought. And even if they lost, they still fought. And finding their victories in us is more important than sort of the games that we play where we talk about how we represent a victory for Catholicism or Spanish colonialism or American colonialism. And so um, that's why it's always important as we look back. And so some of this has already been done by, by people, let's say, like you look at uh, somebody like um, Angel Santos and Nashon Chamorro. I mean, what is it that when we think about what they did, very successful in terms of protesting for land rights, getting the Chamorro Land Trust pa uh, implemented, um, but one of the things that they really did, which was very special, and we, them and then others such as Pa'atautautano or Guma Paluli'i, which later became Ifan Lelayan, was helping us feel more connected to our ancient ancestors so that we could see them as more than just victims of history that had to die so we could become modern. Because that's always, that's always like the colonial promise is that just curse your ancestors. Just see them as being primitive stooges that had to be cast aside so you could become educated, you could become prosperous, you could become civilized. And that's always, there's always this lure. And when we, if we talk to like a lot of our parents or our grandparents, we'll hear that, right? They'll say stuff like, oh, you know, Magellan, yeah, Hungan, he was such an asshole. But without him, we'd be running around in like skirts and stuff. And, you know, we'd just be like dancing naked. And I mean, that would be great for the tourism industry, actually, an <laughs> island of naked dancing people. But, but anyways, to be, to be serious, though, like for them, it's difficult because the, the, the scent, that power of colonization, that colonial promise was so strong that you couldn't critique the church. You couldn't critique the version of history that was handed to you. But we have to give Nashon Chamorro and Angel Santos credit because when they went out and put on a loincloth and like protested, people laughed at them. But then eventually they, they shifted the consciousness just like those who sort of started new Chamorro dance traditions in ancient styles, is that at first people laughed at them and people said they're crazy. People wondered if perhaps the medication dosage wasn't high enough. They would wonder all sorts of stuff like that. But then eventually people actually start to respect them. And that's that power is that we have lots, there's all of this history. And if you, you know, it's kind of like when you have court cases, right? People cite all these cases to try to lead you in a certain direction. And so somebody will lead you one direction, others will lead you the other. And so traditionally we have sort of the citations of our history which lead us towards feeling like we are powerless. And that history is whatever other people who came to Guam did. But now we're finally getting to the point where we can look at that and then we can actually say, no, we can write our own history we can look what colonizers wrote, we can tell it in our own voice, and then what we're seeing now with sort of more and more acceptance of independence or even just, even just sort of like simple things, a lot of that is tied to sort of that opening up of history. I mean, I, I am wearing a sinahi right now, and if you don't know what a sinahi is, it is a, it's a hima shell, a giant clam shell necklace, and I was not in the first wave of Sinahi wearers on Guam. I was like in the second or sec 2.5 wave or something like that. So some people had already been wearing it for like 10 years, and those were the hardcore people, sort of like Angel Santos and Ed Beneventi and so on. Those were the guys who wore it when it was considered to be like really taboo and crazy to do it um, because people would look at it. And the first time I put on a Sinahi, it was very interesting 
my grandfather told me like to get it out of the house. He's like tautomona and now. That's like a that's like something from the ancients. Don't you dare wear that in the house because a lot of the elders would see those necklaces as artifacts, but their belief was that which comes from the ancients stays on the ground. We don't bring it into our houses. We don't bring it into our lives. We don't think about it. You respectfully leave it on the ground, leave it in the past. And so putting on the senahi represented a way of trying to reconnect to that past. And it's interesting now because now like there's lots of senahis everywhere. Like I see I see random people. I saw a Russian tourist in a senahi. It scared me to death. I was kind of like, what is oh my goodness, it's Vladimir Putin. That's what he got. He got a senahi from Trump. But um anyways. And so um but yeah so for all of you guys, though, you can like really think about that, though. What are the things from Guam's history, which, which from a certain perspective looked like all is lost, there's no hope, everything is said and done, but what you learn oftentimes at UOG and sort of in classes from some of the great professors here, from some of the great books that have been written recently and articles, is that there's another way of looking at it so that you can actually see that Chamorros weren't just sort of made from Play-Doh, made from Play-Doh and then sort of colonizers warped them and shaped them into sort of um, subservient people that serve in the US military and love to make t-shirt companies. And so what are your, like, um, what are your senses of history? What can you think about? Before I talk about anything to do with history, I just want to just say a an encounter that I have that I so happen to come across a very deep intellectual conversation and like all deep intellectual conversations it happened on Facebook and there was this woman who commented on a post by our very own Dr. Bivakwa's opinion piece on, about independence and this also has to do with what Manny said earlier, the first wave of decolonization, how it happened in, ironically, the United States. She was essentially arguing that Guam, the Guamanians, or however you like to call them, Chamorros, Hispanics, Mexicans, whatever, somehow they don't deserve the right to self-determine themselves. They don't deserve the right to decolonize themselves. They don't deserve the right to think and determine their own destiny. And what was her reasons? Her reasons were this. Guam received so much aid from the United States. Without the United States, Guam would be nothing. And I find this very ironic in many ways. And let me just tell you why. The irony is that the British themselves, particularly the English, said the same exact things to the, to the Americans. They told them the exact same thing. Why? Why are you rebelling against King George? Why don't you want to be British anymore? You receive so much aid from us. We protect you with our military. Why? What is the matter with you? And when I told her this, she, for some reason that I have no idea, said I should read up my history, that I should look it up, that I do not understand basic American history. Now, I don't want to say this because it's rude, but she is what you call ignorant, stupid, and out of touch with reality, not only with the re reality right now, but with her own history, American history. So I just want to just ask this to some of you. 
why is it that decolonization, that there are so many Americans, so many people, even Chamorros, who are so hostile to decolonization, when is in fact the history of the United States was built upon this. Ed, you didn't tell us that you were a master uh, audiobook narrator. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, you, you bring up um, a really interesting point. Uh, well, you did say that. Why are so many Americans opposed to, you know, the idea of, col- of decolonization? Um, but what I would say is that not all Americans are uh, anti-decolonization. And in fact, uh, our very own uh, Becca Garrison, um, whose uh, focus is on uh, settler narratives, um, I think she could express, uh, you know, um, the, the, the counter arguments or, you know, not everyone's a Paul Zerzan. We'll, we'll just put it that way. So uh, she'll, she can speak on that. But um, really quick, I just, I just wanted to bring up um, that it's, it's troubling when we hear these things like, uh, oh, uh, Chamorros don't deserve to be decolonized. They don't deserve to govern themselves because they get so much from Uncle Sam. But what, what makes it worse is when the media and um, uh, political figures who are figures of authority in our community, when they say things like that. And I think that that just exacerbates the problem. And that, that's something that really frustrates me as a former journalist. So um, uh, earlier this year, we had uh, Doris Flores Books, the uh, public auditor, who um, made headline news on PDN, of all places, uh, saying that, uh, you know, she supports statehood. If she had to choose, it would be statehood because uh, status quo is no longer an option. So, um, but again, one of the things that I tried to argue recently is that, you know, these are, these are people uh, who are products of their generations. So, I mean, you know, we can't, we can't fault them for all things, but uh, perhaps an openness, an openness to, to listen to new, new concepts, new ideas, and new realities. But uh, I'd like to pass the mic over to uh, Becca Garrison. Well, I think Edward actually brings up really important points. You know, um, I think a lot about theorists like Minolo and Quijano that talk about how modernity, you cannot have modernity without coloniality. And in fact, they're not even separated, right? And so the ways in which like us white settlers are taught history is always, you know, that this colonialism is a thing of, of the past, right? That there's... Um, that colonialism is a thing of the past. And so when you actually begin to talk about decolonization within the contemporary moment, there's almost this disconnect in how the settler imaginary can even think of um, settler colonialism as a continuation, correct? So there's, um, for me, it's really important to begin to think about how really decolonization is not a metaphor, right? And this is an important uh, critique that um, comes out of an article by Tuck and Yang. And we can talk all we want about um, decolonizing education. We can talk about decolonizing history or you know, decoloni- decolonizing our minds. But we have to remember that it's always just the first step towards repatriation of indigenous lands that settlers are living atop of, right? And are in positions of control and power. And so, for me, we also need to question, uh, in fact, the international law framework of decolonization, correct? Because, you know, if you are vying for free association or integration, are you really decolonizing? I think that independence is really the only option that would allow uh, I believe, the the Chamorro community to go through a true process of decolonization because then Chamorros would be in control the destiny of their own lands. It's, I feel that um, having that sort of like multicultural support for decolonization is really, really essential because so often independence or decolonization is portrayed as this ripping away from the world, you're shutting down, you're closing things out, you're, you're becoming more isolated, and it doesn't mean that at all, not at all. And so it's, it's easy to forget that 
in in this context that m most countries are multicultural. They got lots of different people there. And so um, I think it's very important that those who are allies in the struggle, you know, that we invite them, you know, Kaleng Hagu Beka, Sidus Masi, and then others to, to basically, you know, to join the conversation, um, to kind of show that this is not an exclusive sort of Chamorro-only conversation. Um, and even if we were to say that it should be, like, that wouldn't necessarily strengthen it. And that's my personal opinion is sort of like the, um, that type of that type of like rhetoric is is not very helpful in sort of the situation like this. And so a lot of it, though, comes down to sort of the level of consciousness of those people, sort of like your your average your average Filipino on Guam. I mean, if they if they've only come recently, there's a good chance they don't even know what a tomorrow is. I mean, uh, somebody, a researcher who came through here doing research on uh, Filipinos in Guam found that in a number of her interviews, uh, she met Filipinos that had been here for five or ten years and did not know what a Chamorro was. They had never heard what a Chamorro was, and they were confused. They thought Chamorros were all dead, you know. And, and so, like, for your average sort of person like that, a lot of it comes down to the society that we live in in many ways, treating Chamorros, like even if we can say that Chamorros are like, you know, they have like a strong place in business or in government or whatever, when we look at this society as a whole, it's very Americanized. And we haven't really done enough to change that. We just kind of brown the edges a little bit. We kind of draw a little carabao on the American flag in the corner, down in the corner maybe. Maybe we put a little azuzu over there to match the red and the red, white, and blue. But we don't really push that. And so part of it is that when, when non-Chamorros on Guam don't know this issue, part of it is that because we're not really including them in the conversation and because, like most people, Chamorros included, may, they live in an American fantasy bubble like some weird Katy Perry song. <laughs> like, just like, you know, I mean, I won't get into how Guam is this sort of American teenage dreamland or anything like that <laughs> but I could talk for a long time about that and maybe I'd want Edward here to narrate it with his cool <laughs> with his cool sexy voice but um but so those those um non chamorros who see past that though their their allyship is so important and so I'll bring up a like a good example um she unfortunately lost in her re-election bid this term, Nerissa uh, Underwood, wife of Robert Underwood, the president of the university here. And she, even as a younger person, was a strong supporter of Chamorro self-determination. She was a member of OPIR, Organization of People for Indigenous Rights. And OPR, OPIR had several non-Chamorros who were allied with Chamorros, um, who, who basically, from an intellectual and from an ethical perspective, felt that this is something I should support. And there's so many ways that we can reach people. Because, you know, if you're, if you're Palawan, Palawans have their story about how they achieved independence. If you're Filipino, Filipinos have their story of how they achieved independence. Um, if, you're, if you're Korean, if you're Chinese, you know, political independence is something that is sort of in your heritage. And a lot of times, though, we have to find ways to politely remind them about that and then basically educate them about Chamorro history, the Chamorro present, and then basically say, look, the Chamorros have been denied the basic thing that your people and so many other people around the world haven't gotten the chance to enjoy. So, I mean, and it's hard sometimes because people, your average sort of everyday muggle person, just thinks like, no, you're taking something away from me. You're taking away my rights or something like that. And they don't really think, you know, is, is that really happening? No, it's, it's not. It's, this is your chance to show that your relationship to this island is based on something more than the fact that the American flag flies here, that there is something more to your love here, your attachment here, than sort of the availability of federal programs. 
And so this is that chance. This is sort of an ethical moment, a moment where you get to participate in the pursuit of justice. And it's weird nowadays because we get so inundated with stories about everything like you can you can just like spend five minutes on Facebook and you will you will be schizophrenic because there will be a story about a dog that can speak Mongolian and there will be a story about a woman who rebuilt her village made out of french fries and there'll be a story about sort of um, sort of another black person shot by a cop in the United States and there'll be all of these crazy stories and so it's easy to feel like everything just happens around you and your goal is to like it or share it. But no, there still exist real connections in this world. But we have to remind people, you have a role to play in that. You have a role to play in seeing that this story, 500, almost, you know, almost 400 years of colonization, that it be put to rest, that it be ended in a powerful way. So that's why I always say to, to non-Chamorros, but so, just your goal here is to basically cheer the Chamorro people on. If you love Guam, if you enjoy Keleguin, if you enjoy Johnny Sablan and his, and his handsome son Matua, even if you like Jimmy D and you think his Chamaritas are quite, quite lovely, support the Chamorro people then, because this is our home. This is our place in the world. And we have a couple, there's a couple of other islands to the north of here. But this is our place. And so if you try to erase us in our own place, we don't get to go back to the Philippines. We don't get to go back to China. We don't get to go back to the United States and then claim Native American land as ours. We don't get to do any of those things. And, but part of this is just having that conversation. And for a lot of people, just me personally, a lot of people that are passionate about this issue and that are Chamorros, they maybe don't even know how to have that conversation because they're so used to only talking to Chamorros about it. And so they may feel like it's not your place to engage with this. But anyways, I definitely um, think that those allies are so important. Those allies are so, so important. And so um, to encourage more people like that to basically stand up and say, I support the Chamorro people. I stand beside them. Um, and I and there's been hundreds of years of them being denied choices. I want to cheer as they make this choice. I'd just like to add <clears throat> as well, I support the Chamorro people. And I think we also need to remember, too, that... Uh, settlers are also receiving a colonial education in the United States as well, right? And so not just by um, what is not being taught to us growing up there, but also thinking about, you know, for example, when I'm in uh, TA classes, I find that so many of the students who are, you know, at USC, uh, white settlers in positions of privilege, are so ill-equipped to even have these conversations. There's no knowledge of um, counter-narrative or master narrative or even you know the word decolonization and so really when we we begin to think about history within a framework of decoloniality then we're always starting from zero and so we have to begin to think about you know that is if that is the narrative that we are taught through the specific lens of whiteness then we be, need to begin to listen, right? We need to go and we need to get educated. We need to not dominate conversations around histories that we've never even been presented, right? And so, and that's how we can become more critically engaged. Uh, I remember, you know, growing up in high school, um, you know, mostly white kids, but also very uh, prominent Native American community. And in my U.S. history class, uh, one of my friends, my, one of my Native friends, being actually escorted out of the class because they, you know, had some, they had some issues with what the professor or what the teacher was talking about. And so for me, that was really a, a moment of consciousness because then I began to also think about, well, what is it that, he's, that my friend is talking about? What is it that the, the, the teacher is not discussing? And so we have to seek out other ways of learning outside of these institutional settings as well yeah thank you i've been thinking a lot about the the fair tax initiative um, that might come to uh, fruition under the trump administration sorry the fair tax initiative yes okay yeah 
No, please inform me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the man. You're the man, Jesse. Yeah, if this fair tax initiative comes to fruition under the Trump administration, I think um, our Gov Guam finances could possibly take a very huge hit. And it just so brings to mind that so much of our economy and survival is dependent upon external factors, you know, factors that we really have no control over. They put big dents into the stability of our lives. And uh, these instances of dependency or when dependency falters has occurred many times throughout recent Guam history, like such as the recession in the 70s that the uh, Berdalio administration had to deal with, kicking off with the Arab um, oil crisis in 1973 where the prices of gas spiked here and uh, Pan Am put a halt on direct flights between Guam and Japan, crippling our tourism industry. And also, too, adding to this recession was the waning years of the Vietnam War, you know, resulting in a huge decrease in military presence and a huge decrease in military spending on the island. Like, our fragile economy is uh, too dependent on these external factors. And I've been researching a lot on the Berdadio administration's um, Green Revolution and how he looked to lessen this dependency. And it was really um, his efforts at gaining more autonomy for Guam. You know, in large part, it was about reconnecting with Kostumbrin cons- Chamorro so that we could become self-sustaining again through agriculture, as our people had achieved for generations before the American occupation. And Guam's shift from, uh, when Guam's shift, shift from farming, a farming-based economy moved to an economy reliant on capitalism. He wanted to regain that attitude of self-reliance in our people. You know, where Kostumbrin Chamorro was still fresh in their memories, I think we need to, I mean, you know, we're already doing that now with the outreach or outreach of, you know, programs that educating the people about independence. And then um, I think many of us think uh, rekindling with Kostumbra and Chamorro and farming and becoming self-sustaining again resonates easily with Chamorros if proposed in the right context. I just wanted to make a comment because you had mentioned Paul Zerzan, you know, and um, I wrote, uh, I wrote a, uh, a letter to the editor that discussed my ideas of settler responsibility. And the first email that I received was from Paul Zerzan calling me a racist. And I have never been called a racist before. And I, I, don't, I did not know who this person was. I had no idea who he is. In fact, actually, you can go read his, uh, his, his email to me because it was subsequently copy and pasted into the comment section of that. But for me, what's scary about people like Paul Zerzan is that now with a Trump election, whether it be in the US or it be here in Guam, apparently, they feel empowered to take their casual racism and make it much more public. And so we all need to be cognizant of, you know, um, people that are like this. And we need to also come together um, beyond our own racialized understanding of solidarity to think of critical affiliation in other way. Because if we continue to let people like Paul Zerzan become empowered, then a true decolonization effort Will be will will increasingly be at risk of impediment. Yeah, and just this idea of calling white supremacists alt right yeah. needs to be not normalized, right? Call it for what it is. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. So we're gonna take a, a really short break. You're listening to Fanatsu Podcast. Um, we are part of the Independence Task Force uh, Media Subcommittee. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. So Miguel, uh, during the break, he got a. Um, hefty eclair looks like um, it's quite delicious I mean so it seems but um <laughs> anyways uh unfortunately Ed had to go he's he had to leave us um, and uh, Becca and Miguel also are heading to the the wave in solidarity of Standing Rock so do you guys want to speak on that really quick I think the the it is very um it's just it's been very uh, intriguing to watch sort of the the development of these protests um and then also sort of alongside 
the discussions about sort of the the future of the United States because of the election of Trump and so on. And um, it really, I'm I'm so grateful for those who've organized the the solidarity action today, um, just because it it's very important. And this is true, you know, throughout all sorts of social movements, decolonization movements. It's very important that sort of you not consider, you don't think of yourself as being alone. Very important that you not sort of see your plight as unique, but that you sort of, you remember that oppression has different faces. It also has similar forms, oppression and sort of can can smell different on different continents. It can taste the same. Like there's all these different ways in which we can see our our struggle in those of others. And for most people in life, when you see those connections, your instinct is to close them off because that is the ethical awakening. That's when it starts, is when you basically see, you basically think, why is this t-shirt so cheap? Oh, it's because people work in sweatshops on the other side of the world, and that that's why I can afford it. And that's the ethical awakening. And then most people shut down because they think, oh my goodness, what is my responsibility here? If I know that something that I benefit from is depends on the exploitation of others, shouldn't I do something about that? Right, because most people are are good people at their core, and they don't necessarily believe that they should benefit if somebody else suffers. But that's why humans are such interesting beings, is that humans have so many ways of lying to ourselves, deluding ourselves, pretending things don't exist. I mean, if you've heard of the analogy of the frog in sort of the boiling pot of water, like the frog, you know, if you if you throw it into the pot of water, it jumps out right away. If you heat the pot of water slowly, the frog stays in there and cooks. Like humans could sit in the pot of boiling water and just be like, I like this. It's loosening up my joints. I like this. This is America water. This water's nice. I like that. Oh, my goodness. I think my balls are gone. Oh, my goodness. That's okay. I didn't need them. I didn't need them. Trump's got America's balls now. You know, just sit there and delude yourself that you're not dying, you're not being incinerated, that somehow this is what you want. And so this is like the the game that, that humanity plays with itself. It's like a weird game of self-reflective chicken, is that you know what you need to do. You know what would, uh, what would make the world a better place. But if it is going to cost something from you, if it means you're going to have to change your life a little bit, even if it's just a couple dollars more a month, most people will say, ah, oh, man, I shouldn't get in. It's okay. You'll delude yourself by saying, oh, you know those sweatshop workers, at least they got work. It's better than them sitting in huts. It's better than them doing that. You know, you'll just justify it. And so it's so important that, um, that here on Guam, with the Standing Rock movement and what's going on there, because we see all sort of all sectors of life sort of coming together. We see veterans, we see environmental activists, we see indigenous activists, we see Black Lives Matters people, like sort of all of these progressive causes. And then Pacific Islanders have gone out there too. All of these people that are seeking justice, they converge on a point and it does create a powerful energy we should tap into that. We should connect to that because we have need of some of that energy here. We have need of some of that ability to inspire, to imagine things differently. I mean, and sort of, and then Chamorro connections to Native Americans. To, so often, we're so we there's this feeling like our connection to Native Americans is that we need to become a, a federally 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 recognized tribe, and then we can get casinos. But that shouldn't be it. Look at those who are there and who are standing and basically acting out with their bodies and with their determination the words and the spirit of the Inafresi.
those who are there to fighting to protect the things which all public school children say they will protect and defend every day here on Guam. We need that energy because whether in terms of military buildups, whether in terms of decolonization, these are our resources. This is what sustains us here. As other islands around the Pacific are being swallowed up by the ocean, ours is being swallowed up by militarization, by pollution, by all of these other things. It, would, it is a good thing for us to connect to that, and it is a good thing for us to support them and also use that to find our own way in this struggle. <clears throat> and so um, I'm excited to go there and get some pictures and talk to some people. Maybe there'll be some who want to make some statements about independence and decolonization. But I'm, I'm grateful to those that, that organized it. And I think it's also important to recognize that we all have our own strengths and contributions that we can make into these movements, um, indigenous or not as well, right? And how we can uh, use those strengths uh, to educate uh, not just um, the, the, pl the places where we live, but also the communities in which we associate, right? So I can take these ideas and I can talk to other white settlers about, about um, these types of solidarities, right? And so I also just wanted to plug that there will be an art fundraiser with live music and there's going to be an art auction at SKC on the 17th. It's going to be $10 and that money will go to help um, the, uh, the legal fees now that um, the, the people in Standing Rock are, are actually um, going to be facing now that the movement has, has progressed in this moment. Nice. Take my money. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, that's a, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, looking at sort of um, Native Americans and looking at all of the sort of um, stuff that has been coming out of that, it's, it's important to see sort of our own possibilities. Like Native Americans have the same struggles that Chamorros do. Um, you know, we think sort of that we have this strangely a unique position because we're surrounded by water. But if you've ever been to Native American reservations, a lot of times they're in places where they feel isolated or desolate and because of the ways that they've been displaced and moved into terrain which was not their ancestral lands and not of value to white settlers. And so it's important for us to connect to them and to, to carry their stories, to share our stories with them. Um, and also because they, now Native Americans oftentimes don't use decolonization, although now it's becoming more prominent, especially academically, to talk about decolonization. For them, it's a little bit different because they have a history of treaties. Um, for them, sovereignty is a common word. Even children in many tribes will talk about sovereignty because it's so embedded in how they talk about their relationship to the United States. We can learn from that too, is that here on Guam, you know, thinking about mental decolonization, and there's so many different ways to approach that. Um, sort of the individual, sort of the small communal, the large macro scale. There's so many ways which you can kind of conceive how to carry out projects for mental decolonization. But one of them is just, if you think about our educational system and you think about like your average social studies teacher, your average social studies teacher probably um, uses a book which was published in the United States and says cool things about the United States. It says that the United States government is like this, and state governments are like this, and it says California, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California, if you can believe that, and Florida's crazy. You know, and it says all of these fun things about the United States. And those teachers and those students, maybe they ask themselves sometimes, why the hell am I learning from this book? Or why am I using this book? Like, why am I... Because when you live in a territory, when you live in a colony, it's really weird. Or it's not weird, actually, because colonial people just 
it's like you're, you're bred to do things against your self-interest. So it makes sense. Like colonies, it seems totally commonsensical that you should privilege somebody else's story over your own. That's part of the colonial experience, that feeling of self-doubt, self-loathing, inadequacy. But then when you just step back and look at it, it's kind of like, why isn't the focus of our social studies classes on the government of Guam or the Organic Act or the insular cases? Like, why isn't it focused on those things? Why isn't it focused on international law? And so you think about it, and that can kind of clue, clue you into why people here on Guam have so much trouble talking about or conceiving decolonization. Because basically, you don't learn, you don't remember everything that you learn in school, right? But you just kind of pick up random things. And so, just like in the United States, if you ask most people, they can't name most of the Bill of Rights, but they know there's a Bill of Rights, and they know that the second one is about the guns. They know that. And the first one is, I don't know, I mean, it might be gone soon. Donald Trump will tweet out its demise or something like that. But there's these things there. They know it. But like your average child on Guam, your average kid on Guam, your average person on Guam, what do they tell you about the Organic Act? They'll say, oh, it gives us U.S. citizenship. That's kind of what they'll say. If you ask them, what about international law? Uh, is that a thing? International law? Is that like a ska band? International law and the whalers or something? You know, what is that? They don't have any sense of that. But that's because here on Guam, we don't focus our education to prepare ourselves for our world. We're stuck in that mindset where education is about preparing ourselves to assimilate into the colonizer's world, to prepare ourselves to to go to the States and live there and live that experience and enjoy the white picket fence and the annual trips to Disneyland and the 2.5 kids. Uh, and so if we want to mentally decolonize, you got to kind of think about, you have to think about it like at that level because there's ways that like one-on-one -on -one conversations or events and stuff like that can help. But here on Guam, if you really want to do it large scale, you got to change those ways that we develop our basic knowledge about ourselves. So imagine if we shifted it so that our social studies classes focused on the stuff that I just mentioned. I mean, it wouldn't mean suddenly that every child on Guam is a Julian Uggen or a Carlisle Corbin or anything like that. But it would mean that your average person like maybe your, your cousin Vinny or one of my cousins or something like that, your neighbor, isn't going to talk like they live in Tuscaloosa, wherever, whatever state that is in. Is that in Illinois or Ohio or Oklahoma? I don't know. It's a fun word to say, Tuscaloosa. And so it's, they won't talk like that because that's living in that colonial fantasy that sort of Guam is just this part of the United States that just um, frequently serves Keloguin. But it would be more that people would lean and move and imagine and even fear in a different direction, one which is bound to their understanding, uh, bound to the particularity of Guam, its political place in the world today. So it, doesn't, it wouldn't make everyone raving decolonization activists. But I can tell you that if the educational system was like that and then you had an event where you said Guam can be independent, those kids would be like, yeah, yeah, I think so. But, but what models would be the best, though? Because I know there's possibilities, but I, but I just want to know which model. Like, I'm not afraid because I know that this is a normal thing. I'm not afraid. I, I wasn't raised in an educational system which makes me feel like I need to always be on my knees begging Uncle Sam to please, please, please come back to Guam. I was raised in an educational system which treated Guam like a real place in the world with its own history, with its own interests, with its own reality. And so when I look to the future, I think independence is possible. And so I want to treat it like that. But, but tell me more. What could it be like? So I'm not exactly sure how I got from Standing Rock to that. But no, that, that's actually that's an awesome segue into our, our last point, um, decolonizing the mind. It sounds cool. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've seen it on t-shirts and hats. Um, maybe, you know, here and there. 
But um, what does that actually mean? And um, yeah, actually getting to the root of it with um, the education system and, um, you know, uh, acknowledging Guam's political place in the international stage um, in the present. So that that's a, certainly one way. Uh, Jesse, did you have something to say? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important theme, theme of indigenous agency in, in history. Rewriting and reteaching our histories can be empowering for our children. Whereas the focus in the past has been placed on, you know, moral satisfaction within colonialism. I think recently, especially here at UOG, um, we've, begun, we've begun extracting narratives of resistance to colonialism. I think this resistance can be seen throughout Spanish colonialism with the accounts of Harao and Aguilin during the Chamorro Spanish Wars, and then again through Japanese occupation with the men from Maleso and the Atuti Rising, and then again throughout American administration with F.B. Leon Guerrero and, and Baltazar Berdadio leading to the Guam Congress walkout in 1949, and Angel Santos' efforts throughout the 90s. I think these stories of resistance really become stories of Chamorro agency in our history, an agency that we can latch on to and harness while we navigate our options for decolonization. And um, the decolonizing of our histories and relearning how we have seen ourselves through, throughout our histories, I think is a big step in the decolonizing of Chamorro minds, beginning with our little children up to our menumku. I mean, Jesse just said it perfectly. Um, again, I think you know I would I would defer to uh, Tuckin, um, you know, thinking about Tuckin uh, Yang's work where they have this funny part in the article where they say, "Oh, it's like it's like that what weird hip hop song in the '90s, decolonize your mind and the rest will follow." No, it's not <laughs> like that. You know, it's a very <laughs> considered. In vogue, in vogue, all right, all right, all right. But it's, 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 it's. Wait a second. We're all in our 30s, right? You're not in your 30s. <laughs> almost, almost. Oh. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah all in our 30s. <laughs> They're not going to know what we're talking about, uh, the younger generation. In vogue, isn't that a magazine? But really, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effort. It's going to take time, and it's going to take people coming at it again from their own strengths that they can contribute, you know? And so decolonizing education is, again, it's it's extremely important first point or first step in that path, but we also need to think about the ways in which we can um, decolonize our our efforts in in other ways as well, you know. And so, uh, and again, decolonization has so much. the 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 foundation of decolonization is the land, and we can never uh, put forget that. It always has to be uh, centered in our in our process towards decolonization. Yeah. We can talk about decolonizing the mind. Um, and in the present day, one of the best ways to do that is to come to one of our meetings. Um, what, what's our what's the next event going on? We have two, right? Is that right? There is a, on the 22nd of December is the next General Assembly meeting. Um, it will be, as usual, at the Chamorro Village Main Pavilion from 6 to 7.30. And as usual, there will be technical difficulties, I'm sure. So please come on down and join the conversation. Um, I am not sure exactly what the focus will be, but as usual, there will be a educational discussion, an educational presentation, and then the dividing into small groups. Um, but for anyone who is interested in, in sort of either learning more or doing more, that is a great place to start. Um, because you'll meet people such as those of us here who are at the table who, you know, just really want to see positive change in the world, believe strongly sort of in things like justice. And if you feel that there's something like something in this discussion kind of resonates with you, then you should definitely come down because there's so many ways to get involved and so many ways to, to support. And so the 22nd of... December at 6 o'clock at the Chamor Village Main Pavilion. You've been listening to the Fanatso Podcast. We are part of the media subcommittee. Um, we've enjoyed 
having you here, um, joining us, listening, uh, joining in in this discussion. You can find us on Facebook, and uh, we also have a website now, www.independentguahan.com. If you have any questions, um, feel free to contact us there. Sizos Masi, thank you. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinanganya independent guahan, araba inafan mataknya iman tomoro, pautatuli tati diretota como unashon, gihilutano, gini minekut niha imanyanata, dani guine zata nui famago umtamotna, inakekefan manungo, dan nakekefanet don todu itato siha, ni manyasagagi ininatano, pautanat let fetna ida guahan, ni todu ininasenata, kosiki senior tafan latla maulik motna, fanatsu, hita latmon.